This is Mission.org. What a movie does is really helps an advertiser, an agency, a marketer look at their video investments holistically. So all these things that they're buying in this bifurcated ecosystem, they can onboard it, all these supply spaces onto one platform and now understand it holistically. With so much fragmentation and complexity in our world today, the ability to step back and see the bigger picture is absolutely essential. Valerie Bashak, the head of growth at Amobi, talks to us today about why failure is a misused word and how learning from people that are both smart and good is so important. Listen to all of this and much more right here on Marketing Trends. I'm your host, Jeremy Bergeron, and I'm excited to take you on this ride with me today. Let's get into it. I guess start with kind of just sharing with our audience a little bit about you and kind of getting to know you because you've had an interesting path kind of going from the publishing world to the ad tech world. And I'd love to just share some context and kind of your career kind of start in publishing and then kind of how you got into that world and then take us to kind of what you're up to now at Amobi. Absolutely. So so I'm going to start with Amobi. I'm the head of growth at Amobi, uh, data and tech company, and we'll get more into that. Started my career on the ad agency side in account management. So um, I didn't initially um, move into the industry thinking I'd be focused in, in the media world. I've always made uh, an effort in my career to follow people and follow really good, smart people that inspire me. And that led me to the media side of the business uh, with a short stint at Fox, which was an interesting time because it was right before AOL bought Time Warner in early 2000. So it was a pretty short stint at Fox as the industry uh, was really erupting, I would say. And I spent a few years uh, through someone I met during that time at DoubleClick. So that was early data in tech, phenomenal experience, but also rode through kind of the bust and some M&A activity around the DoubleClick media uh, group. And through one of the six bosses that I had um, during my two and a half years at DoubleClick, which were phenomenal, by the way, uh, I ended up getting in the door at Viacom. And, you know, my first bunch of years at Viacom, I spent proving that I can learn TV because I was a digital person. The last 10, I had a, a total of 17 years there, reminding everyone I was a digital person. And uh, from there, it just seemed like a natural next step as I was entrenched and learned kind of my love of brands on the agency side, a good feel for data and tech in the early days at DoubleClick, moving into big brands within the Vi then Viacom umbrella, now Paramount Global, and understanding the TV landscape. I just wanted to take all of that content experience and deep dive a bit into data and tech, which brought me to Amobi. Wow. I do want to dive into... Something you mentioned earlier, and I want to get right into just how this industry is transforming and, and the shifts and changes that you've seen. And I just would love to sh share your perspective around what you've seen happen, what you see happening, and maybe take us out into the future a bit more, because I think you have an interesting perspective. 
Yeah, sure. Um, definitely my uh, favorite thing to talk about because it's fascinating and it's happening in real time. We're living it and we're watching it happen and accelerate. And consumers used to watch uh, TV through a linear right, a, a cable, coaxial cable, and it was simple. And advertisers could reach their audiences at scale by buying a load of linear TV. And then cord cutting started and it happened amongst the younger consumers. And I was there while MTV was the first to really feel that, right? Because they were the one of the younger, if not the youngest cable brand. And then over this past few years through this, uh, you know, wild time we've lived through, cord cutting increased, content consumption and CTV environments increased, and it really added complexity for advertisers. It was no longer, a, I think I want to spend some money in CTV. It became not a nice to have, but a must have. How do I reach these audiences at scale? Now that this landscape's so fragmented, there's ad-supported streaming, there's a ton of consumption there. You can only get so many viewers. And I think linear TV will, I'm not a believer that linear TV is dead, but it's changed and it's evolved dramatically. And to reach audiences at scale, you need to buy across this really fragmented video landscape. And it's hard. Wow. I love, I love that you, you said you don't believe linear TV is dead. Can you unpack that a little bit? I love that. So fewer people have linear, you know, cable subscriptions. I think it's going to be interesting to see how that evolves and transforms. But regardless, I don't see it going away. You've got viewers that really enjoy the experience of getting every channel through one connection. We just need to understand it's now a piece of the puzzle rather than the entirety of the puzzle. And as we've gotten smarter, look at advanced TV solutions. So no longer is the only game in town buying TV contextually, which I still think is very important. But now what if we add data and technology and addressability and take the best things of digital and apply that to TV, but still get the TV scale? So I, I think linear TV will continue to exist. We'll get smarter about reaching audiences there and then combining it with the scale of CTV and the OTT environment. Were you surprised at the velocity and the speed at which this industry was shifting? I mean, you're, you're in it on the publishing side at Viacom and you, you know, now on the ad tech side, but as you kind of reflect back on that time, like, was it just crazy fast that, or were there times where you were like, I don't know where this, like, what was your perspective on, I mean, how we are now? Cause it seems like to be in the middle of the storm almost where you were kind of like seeing all the behaviors changing and seeing how people interact with media differently and, yeah, what was that like? It was interesting because in the early days, right, you know, you knew that there were some subscribers. We bought Pluto pretty early on at um, as part of the Viacom experience. And there were people that were really loyal Pluto viewers and that there were in Tubi was out there. But so there were some there were points to these trends, but the velocity and the acceleration over COVID in retrospect, sure, it makes a ton of sense that would have moved that fast. I mean, the amount of content we all consume has just grown exponentially. But no, I, I wish I could have said I had the crystal ball and knew it would accelerate. When people were saying five years from now, five years from now, I thought maybe it could be four, but it was really 12 months. Wow. Take us through the experience for you, you know, being on the side of the business you're in now, just the past two years, like from the way the world, you know, COVID, what did you notice about customer behavior and engagement and, and behavior and things like that? I've learned a ton and it's been a wild ride. In the beginning, as I was talking to clients 
and clients that with whom I was familiar, I'd, I've known many of the, the clients or the same stakeholders that I was talking to in my role at Viacom that I'm now talking to in my role at Amobi. And what we shared with each other was, I said, you know, what I was asking you to do in my role at Viacom buy a little bit less linear because I don't have as much supply, but buy my connected TV footprint, buy my Pluto footprint, buy my data-driven linear capabilities, there was philosophical alignment. Sure, I absolutely want to reach those audiences and know that I can't reach them exactly the same way. So early on, it was philosophical alignment. Fast forward 18 months, it's now... I've got to do this. I need a technology. And what Amobi does is, you know, really helps an advertiser, an agency, a marketer look at their video investments holistically. So all these things that they're buying in this bifurcated ecosystem, they can onboard it, all these supply spaces onto one platform and now understand it holistically. So they can see what's driving incremental reach. They can manage frequency. So we've all been in a spot where we've watched a streaming service and seen the same ad five times or 10. <laughs> and, and our technology solves that. So what as acceleration of CTV has happened and early on in these conversations, it was, I know I need to think about this and do something about it. And, and now it's, we're doing something about it. Wow. Can you speak to... Five years from now, like what do you see? What do you see now that you've had this really interesting career and perspective, and you've seen the speed at which things can happen? Like, where take us five years out? What's what does this world look like? I think it's taking the power of what we've all gotten a lot more comfortable with in data and technology, and bringing context and content and marrying the three. And I think we've been parallel pathing. No one's saying content and context doesn't matter, but there's so much of the conversation has been around data and tech. And when you look at all three together, especially as we look at a cookie-less future, a data deprecated world privacy conversation, how do you take the best of data, use great technology, and make sure context is right? marry the three. And, and I think that's where the magic happens in terms of ad performance, in terms of consumer experience. You mentioned something earlier that I want to just circle back to. And you said something around, you started following smart people. I think you said something like that, right? And so I, 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 lo- I love that. And I think that's very interesting. And I'm just curious, to like, take like kind of going back in your earlier in your career where you noticed like, okay, because I think it's one thing to work amongst brilliant people. You know, I, I was at Google. I had some amazing people that I worked with and it was awesome. And and a lot of people didn't follow them necessarily. And some some would, I get that. But I'm just curious, like, what are the things that you kind of latched onto and saw in people that you're like, wait a second, like this person's sharp and smart, but there's, what characteristics did they have that you said, wow, I'm not only going to connect, I'm going to follow and I'm going to go where the path that they're going down. What was that? What was that about? I followed good people that were also smart and people that inspired me that I could learn from that I could tell just cared about collaborative and success together that had passion and yes, smart. It's pretty easy to find really smart people, finding really smart people that you want to be in the weeds with and in the trenches with. That's a little more difficult. Now, I've been fortunate in my career. I guess I've called it right, and I've been around incredible people every step of the way. 
But yeah, I think it's empathic. I think it's passionate people. I think it, it's just good human beings. That's always served me well. And actually, you know, I remember coming out of college and I have a brother that's a couple years older than me and who's still a, a mentor and a source of wisdom at times, even though, he, you know, uh, he, we, uh, and he, he has a serious side to him. And I said, you know, Ed, I've got two job offers. I've got one for $19,000, literally, and this other one for 23. And I mean, I've obviously, right, have to take that $23,000 job, right? $4,000 in that time. That's a high percentage of <laughs> yeah. those numbers. And he said, no, no, no. He said, which people seemed better? Who were you inspired by? Who was your boss going to be? Those are the decisions you make. You don't make decisions based on money. He said, 10 years from now, talk to me. For now, you do not make decisions based on money. You just make decisions based on people and opportunity. Wow. Thanks, big bro. I appreciate that. That's awesome. What's your relationship like with with failure? You know, and and I feel like in your career you've been exposed to lots of roller coaster rides just in the industry itself. But you know, now kind of looking back and even today, like what is what's your relationship with failure like today? Well, I think my relationship with failure, the word, is that I don't like the word failure because I think it very rarely applies. I think the only time it's true something is because I make tons of mistakes. And right as as a human being, we take make tons of mistakes. I think the only failure is when you don't learn from your mistakes. So if I answer your question more along the lines of what kind of mistakes have I made, I've always been at really fast paced environments. It's always seemed that it's been accelerated change, right? And which is funny because looking back, it was probably not so transformative in terms of the times, but I've never been in roles that haven't been fast paced. And it's poised through chaos is one of the things I've learned. And it took a while, right? The first few times are either rumors about whether it's M&A or a volatility with an account that you're working on, those things can rattle. You know, I think it's more typical that those things rattle someone and distract them rather than continuing to be focused on on kind of the job at hand and how can I get smarter and better. And I I think those are mistakes that um, were repeated until you really learned how to digest. And now I would consider myself someone that's really good at poise through chaos. It's learned behavior. You're failing if you don't try new things. You're failing if you don't put yourself in situations where you're going to make mistakes because if you, it, you don't learn if, if you don't. Mm, no, that's great. I love that. Um, tell us about a success that you're particularly proud of in your career to date and why it was a success. I could give you two things that stand out. I think one might be more interesting than the other. It depends on the perspective at the time. One's a little more human and one is driving a business forward. So in terms of driving a business forward, about five years into my tenure at Viacom, I had a new boss and he said to me, we call on investment teams, we call on ad agencies. We've never done a good job here of calling on clients directly. The industry was transforming these these clients directly, the advertisers, the brand managers that we were that were spending millions of dollars with us weren't typically part of the central to our conversations. He asked me to build a client facing sales force for the in you know the first one in in Viacom's history. And that was about all of the direction I got. you know it was 
okay, well, how do I do this? Well, just pick five clients and just go for it and show, let's see if it has an impact on our success as a sales organization. I did that with complete lack of clarity, but I knew the mission. I understood the strategy. I believed in it and it was successful quantitatively and qualitatively. And we rolled it out to 15 people after and created this new role after about 18 months doing it on my own. And it still exists there. Um, you know, it's evolved a bit today. So that was fun, exciting. It was a really good experience in doing something with complete lack of clarity and succeeding and, and just communicating to make sure that I was driving towards the mission that, you know, he envisioned. So, Wow. Do you have a military background? I don't. You don't. There's something about you that strikes me as someone who has this like, like this focus. Like, I feel like when I'm talking to you, like I'm talking to a sniper, like someone who has this interesting dance of like delaying gratification, like plays the long-term game, um, can really zero in, like just in, just in hearing you share, it's like, you're very, yeah. Like the, even, even how you talk, it's like, it's focused, it's like precise. And it's like, it's spoken with intention. And so I'm just, is there a connection to that? Like uh, athletically, like, did you, yeah. like, I don't know. Like, I just feel like, I don't know. You have this very, a very cool focus to you, a cool, calm focus. And I'm just wondering where that comes from. Right. Some of it, I believe, so I don't know the answer. I, I did play sports growing up, you know, pretty competitively, not, not through college. What's made me, I think, successful in this industry and as a salesperson has been this combo of I'm pretty cerebral, but I'm also very relationship driven. And I can... Not that you have to uh, be one or the other, but I think I can talk to an operations-focused person very well, but I can also have you know a really casual conversation in a coffee shop very effectively. Like I'm very comfortable in different situations, and I think maybe that's what you're you know getting at. I, I think it it has been, and it helped me a lot in you know being in a, a TV-driven business, which was massively relationship driven, but being able to kind of wrap my head around more data and tech stuff um, really helped. And I was able to kind of go in and out of either, depending on the situation. You know, it's interesting, you know, I talked to a lot of, you know, marketing leaders, CMOs and, and modern day marketing leaders that that really have this dance between the art and the science of, of, of being a marketing leader. And you very eloquently kind of said the same thing of just, you have this art and science to your approach to the world that you're in. It's like, you can get into the data, you appreciate that, but you can also get into the art of just connecting human to human. And those two obvious drivers are, I see now why you're at this really cool intersection at, at Amobi too. It makes perfect sense of being able to pull on both of those things, which I don't think everyone can do that well, certainly at, at a leadership level like you. So that, that's, that makes sense. That's cool. Cool. Um, if you could restart your career from the beginning, what would you change? Yeah, I wouldn't change a thing. Even though I started in account management and pivoted, that was a great experience. I still keep in touch with people from those early jobs that we've never crossed paths professionally again. Yeah, I, and I would say that about life, not only professionally. Mm, I love that. I know. I, I mean, I can't read your mind, Valerie, but I knew you were going to say that. So um, Tell us something that you had to learn very quickly, maybe at your career, but that you knew nothing about it before. You mentioned the, the Viacom example before. Is there anything else where you feel like you got thrown in 
to a world where you had to quickly learn something um, where you didn't have a lot of context on it? Yeah, I mean, I think this role at Amobi, um, A, starting um, in a pandemic, I started in March 2021. And it was a situation where, sure, I knew data and tech and I knew generally speaking, um, you know, quite a bit about the industry, but I didn't know what I didn't know. And there's a lot of when you really deep dive into the different, the competitive landscape. Even now, if you go to a, a conference or an industry event, there the nuances and what companies are delivering and how everyone fits in there. You know, I, I think it's it's a huge learning curve and um, it continues to evolve too. So you can't really study it and then be done. <laughs> you know? Are you involved in much hiring? I guess hiring a part of a part of your okay, because there was a question around just when it comes to hiring, what values are most important to you as a leader when it comes to hiring and building a high performance team? So good human, good, even personality with, um, but a lot of passion for what he or she is is doing. I would say adaptable for sure. Being able to be nimble and adaptable. There's just going to be a ton of change. Empathic. I know it, you know, a lot of people talk about empathy. Um, I think it's, it's right on, you know, I, I, I don't say it because it's almost like a buzzword at this point. I say it because not only do you need that way to, to be empathic around your team, around your coworkers, but you really need to, to be able to understand where your clients are coming from. I think it's crucial to just being successful in any role. Can you talk about the culture at Amobi? Like talk about the, I mean, what, what you've obviously, you know, you've stayed there, you're still there. You, you have a lot of experience and perspective. We've talked about that, but what's the culture like there? And what's, what's maybe different about Amobi than other places you've, you've been before? The thing that really stuck with me when I was meeting a ton of people at Amobi is they fiercely believe in what we have created here as a marketplace solution. And I aligned to that. Like I did not necessarily need to be sold. I needed to understand what it was uh, that we were focused on doing, which was essentially, you know, solving cross-screen planning. So I would say the culture is passionate, a belief in the fact that we have a right to win and we really make this marketplace work more effectively and smart and, uh, yeah, really driven. A little too much focused on virtual meetings. That, that would be, a, you know, if I say like, it's not perfect, it's certainly not perfect and it's evolved in the the 15 or so months I've been here, we've got to get out a little bit more. And I would say that's the contrast. And maybe it's the time, right? But more disciplined about being externally focused, which is so crucial to, to hear from our customers and understand needs. And we do it, but it's these virtual meetings. There's, there's too many of them. But I think that's really just something we're all struggling with right now and need to get back at like strengthening those muscles we used to have in terms of getting out from in front of the screen. Yeah. Can you touch on the future of work? I know you mentioned that earlier as well, like just thoughts around future of work and what, you, what you're seeing. I mean, I think it's going to be really important that it, there's a lot of flexibility. I don't think it's a one size fits all. I've always said that too. Flexibility means something different pre-pandemic and post-pandemic, right? And now it's just, we're all much more in tune with the fact that flexibility is different for everyone. So I think the future of work is a hybrid scenario that's semi-individualized with some guardrails. I don't think a stringent, you must be back in the office three days a week or whatever number is really smart. 
I think it's about setting up metrics for success and here's here's what you need to accomplish and and I, I think it'll evolve. I think people miss humans, generally speaking, even introverts, right? You know, and I would say I'm back to the, I'm an, in, you know, an introverted extrovert, I would define myself as. I like some alone time. I think we've all had an, enough of that and treasure some of it. But I think generally speaking, we can be more effective in person just in, in life and work and get back to it. But has anything shifted at Amobi in terms of how you're collaborating with the team? Is it new ways to collaborate or things you've trying or testing that maybe you weren't doing pre-pandemic? Having been at Amobi only during the pandemic, I don't know what it was like before necessarily only by, you know, someone telling me how, how it was. The good old days. The good old days. And we got out a lot more and traveled a lot more. But I, I think that what I'm trying to do as a leader is make sure I understand each individual and what's important to them and then give us really good reasons to use our time externally, make sure we're at the right conferences, we're in the right client engagements, and then spend time with each other. Because what I really miss is solving problems in the hallway. I'd rather solve a problem walking down the hallway than setting up a 30-minute Zoom. And it feels better too, right? Because I think human nature is if there's really a, a, a problem, like a hard, uh, a challenge that you're having inter and let's call it internally, it's a lot more comfortable to just in the moment give someone feedback. And I'm a big, you know, candor person, you know, it's like kind, but candid. It's so much easier to give feedback in the moment and, and just grab someone and say, hey, like, let's do this in the hallway when it's a structured, formal, virtual 30 minute Zoom. It feels different. Mm, yeah, there's, uh, I know there's some folks that, you know, we'll meet, we meet virtually with folks internally and then other partners and things. And some people are almost like on strike with their camera. They're like, I can't even turn my, I have, I have, you know, zoom fatigue, you know, and they're just like, I can't even turn my camera on right now. It's like too much of that. And I'm starting to see that a little bit more and more, uh, here and there, not everyone, but I, but I also get it. Like, I understand it. Like there it's like you said, I think a lot of people are really craving, Getting back to that, you know, let's have a conversation in person. When can we get together, you know? And so I'm seeing, you know, some people, yeah, really kind of raising the flag of like, I can't, I can't even do it anymore. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's tough, Jeremy. Like I, I also, I understand it, but I don't like it. The camera off. I think about how I'm presenting to a room of, of cameras off. It's not fun. I'm a camera on and, you know, maybe moments, you know, if, um, I shut it off for a minute if, you know, my kids get home from school or, or whatever it is, because they won't, they won't come into my picture. They, everyone else would be fine with them, you know, uh, coming up in the screen, but they're like, mom, I won't even come near you if uh, the camera's on. But so I shut it off for moments, but I'm a big camera on. I, I, I do get it. I just don't like it when there's a camera off. Hmm. Do you have any, any comments on kind of shifting into you know, being data first. And I'll, I'll, I'll kind of read this segment and just, if you have any perspective, share it. When a brand focuses on building trusted relationships versus this kind of momentary customer experiences, loyalty and revenue will follow. The only way to do this is by being data first. And a data first strategy is centered around zero and first party data. It's about getting to know your customer before anything else. And then using that knowledge to personalize and continually improve each moment across marketing and commerce, service, sales, et cetera, at scale and in real time. Um, 
How can brands do this well in 2022? Do you have a perspective around that? So I think about an example. So I'm going to say data first, but data alone doesn't get you there. You need technology or else the consumer experience is going to be awful. So let me give you an example. We're a coffee brand and we want to reach coffee drinkers. We have incredible first party data and and look and segmentation studies and go reach coffee drinkers on five different media properties, whether in CTV or linear. But you have no idea if they're the same consumers watching all five places, you're hitting them with what? A hundred frequency. That's not, so data alone doesn't get you there. It doesn't get you to a good consumer experience and a bad consumer experience does not lead to brand love. Add technology so that you can understand incrementality. You can understand unique audiences. You can understand how to then manage frequency. I think it gets you there and I think it's crucial because in the end, not to do too much on the Amobi front, but we, our mission is to offer ad technology that optimizes outcomes for advertisers while providing better experiences for consumers. And when there are good experiences for consumers, they're more receptive to advertising, performance it then goes up. And then on the published, the other stakeholder publishers, if performance is up, they can charge more for their spots because they're more valuable. So they yield better. So everyone wins in the equation. But I would say it's data plus tech. There's an article around skills every leader needs for scaling. Uh, one of the points they make is to motivate individuals to succeed by creating two promotional tracks. One is obviously for managers, but most people shouldn't be managers and some people have no intent on being one. So companies should have a non-management promotional track do you have any initial thoughts on the kind of non-management promotional track or just that approach in general? I do. I think it's smart. I think we take for granted that someone wants to be a manager. And this is where good communication skills come in and, and candor and usually people know it's coming from a caring place. Hey, you know, is is are you interested in in being a manager? I've had those conversations throughout my career and someone said, you know what? I'm just a much better individual contributor. So I am a bit of a, a marketing geek. I, I did do my undergrad in marketing. And, you know, one of the things I always thought was somewhat funny, but 100% true is this concept of the Peter principle, right? I think it was uh, Drucker, was like, you rise to the level of your incompetency, right? You give a, a computer programmer, instead of giving them or her harder programs, you promote them to management and they, they, they're not good managers. They just needed harder and harder programs. And so... You know, it's, I, I'm a huge believer in, in managerial track is right for some and uh, a stronger level, more, you know, a broader individual contributor track is a great career. I'll give you one synopsis and it's one of my guiding principles um, that I've always loved. I'd gone to the Churchill War Rooms. I don't know if you've ever been in, in London and, you know, see Winston Churchill and where he ran the battle. So I got pretty into Churchill and read it a bit. And he said, plans are useless, but planning is essential. And I'm a big believer in that, especially as we look at these transformative times. You've got to plan, you've got to be disciplined, but you've also got to be able to, uh, confident enough to rip them up when they don't matter anymore and not look at that as failure. Look at that as success that you've, that you've looked at the environment and you, you have to recalibrate. Mm. I love that. Plans are useless. Planning is essential. Um, who's inspiring you these days? When I think about my mentors, I think about 
like individual qualities of about 10 different people. My kids inspire me. Some former bosses inspire me. Some like Jill Ellis, you know, a, a coach of the U.S. women's soccer team. I, I had the pleasure of interviewing her a couple of years ago and spending quite a bit of time with her. She inspires me. She's phenomenal. And, and what she's done for gender equality um, and really pushing through in a, a really competitive sport and succeeding. Um, so she inspires me. There, there are a list of people that really inspire me. I love that. It's awesome. Anyone um, like like Churchill, like past past leaders that also you want to note and mention that you really enjoyed learning about or that maybe inspired you? I thought Rob Iger's book was really good, really solid on leadership. I, I really enjoyed that. I think he's um, he's really inspiring in terms of what he accomplished. Awesome. Okay, great. Okay. This is, this has been awesome. Um, thank you so much for being here. This is incredible. Um, we'll get into the lightning round, but I just wanted to say thank you for taking the time to be on the show. You were an exceptional guest, first time podcaster. You crushed it. So thanks for being there, Valerie. Thanks, Jeremy. It was a lot of fun. Indeed. Okay. So here's some fun questions here and we'll wrap up. Um, before we start, I want to make, make a note to our sponsor, Salesforce. Uh, this podcast is brought to you by Salesforce. And when you think about Salesforce, do you think marketing and engagement being brought together? For those of you who want to learn more, head over to salesforce.com forward slash marketing. And we have Valerie. Let's see from a Moby. First question, Valerie, what do you love and appreciate about yourself? Sense of humor. Fantastic. Uh, what's your favorite day of the week? Saturday. Okay. And you're doing these correctly. Some people have really long answers. You're like, you're this lightning round. You're, you're doing great. It's lightning. Okay. Um, what's your favorite city in the U.S. besides the one you live in? Chicago for work, Santa Fe for leisure. Okay. I love Santa Fe. Um, would you rather be able to speak every language in the world or be able to talk to animals? Every language in the world, no doubt. Okay. Uh, please fill in the blank. Something wise my elders taught me was? Health is the only thing that matters. The rest is BS. Oof, love that. Um, would you choose invisibility or super strength? I guess super strength. I don't know. I'd have to think about that one. Um, if you weren't in the role you're in now, what would you be doing? Skiing a lot more. I just spoke to a CMO who loves skiing too, and I'm a big fan myself. So, okay, great. And then last question, what would you go back and whisper in the ear of your younger self about being a leader? You don't have to be loud and super extroverted to be a good leader. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. 
From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.